0: Before we begin our study this morning, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace, your mercy to us, your your steadfast faithfulness. Your grace never ceases. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to study your word this morning, to be challenged by what we learn, to gain a greater appreciation for your purposes and plans in human history, and to gain a greater understanding of all that you have done in the design of our so perfect salvation, how you prepared for it through the Old Testament period, how you executed it during the dispensation of the Messiah, and how you are I uh, bring about the, our unique spiritual life today as members of the body of Christ preparing us to be his bride. Now Father we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every now and then when you get ready to teach a lesson certain things happen that cause you to wonder just what it might be that I'm going to be teaching this morning in this lesson that is of such tremendous spiritual import. reason I say that is because last time we had technical difficulty, so if you were here last Sunday morning, second hour, you're going to hear a nice repetition for about the first 20 minutes or 30 minutes or so of what we covered last week simply because we did not get everything in one lesson like we should, so I'm doing a bit of a repeat. Also, uh, got a couple of questions about typology last week and I thought, well, a good review is just going to be good and maybe get this nailed down for everybody. And then this morning with the heater going out and then the heater coming on, canceling class and classes back on. And then in the midst of all that, I had, uh, once again forgotten my notes this morning and had to go home and get them. So I had picked them up during second hour, during the break, just in case we were going to have second hour in case the heater worked. And I put them up here on the podium, and then after we decided to have the second hour, then uh, after we had the business meeting, the chairman picked up my notes along with his notes, and we had to scramble there during the singing to find what happened to my notes. So it's like somebody doesn't want me teaching this lesson this morning. All right, we are in our study on the person of Jesus Christ, known technically as Christology. And I am making a point by the way I've structured this, which is a little different from the way it's sometimes structured, by looking primarily at the Old Testament information about the Messiah before we get into the New Testament information about the Messiah. And the reason I am doing this is because one of the areas of assault today on Christianity is that this concept of the deity of Christ is something new, something that was invented. Jesus never claimed to be divine. The apostles didn't claim deity for him. This was something that was added later on in church history. And, of course, the most extreme view is one that's presented that it was it was voted on and approved at the Council of Nicaea. Actually, uh, at Nicaea, they were approving a doctrinal statement called a creed that defined clearly the per the eternality of Jesus Christ as opposed to the heresy of Arianism. And there were over three hundred bishops from around the uh Mediterranean area. It was called an ecumenical council because it involved everybody. There was no division, no Catholic, Protestant, no denominations at that time. It occurred in three twenty five uh uh AD and excuse me Yeah, 325 A.D., and it was, or 425 A.D., excuse me, 425, and this was a statement that was just a further refinement of several earlier statements, such as the Apostles' Creed and other statements that had been made earlier that clearly stated a belief in the full deity and humanity of Christ, although it wasn't clearly articulated As such, now in the early church the challenge was to Jesus humanity. Today the challenge is to Jesus deity. And what I am showing here is that in the Old Testament there are, there have been two, there were two streams of revelation. The first stream emphasized his deity, that the Messiah who came, who would come, would be fully God. The second stream emphasizes his humanity. It is in Isaiah 9, 6, where we have the terminology, a son is given, a child is born. Son picks up the sonship idea from Psalm 2. That is an emphasis on his deity. Child is born emphasizes his humanity. And then he is called Emmanuel, which means in the Hebrew, the last two letters, E-L, God. Uh, the I-M prefix at the beginning means with, and Manu indicates us. So it means God with us. This is as close as the Old Testament revelation came to showing that the Messiah would be both God and man. You don't have clarity in the Old Testament uh, quite the precision that you do when you come to New Testament passages such as John 1:14 or Philippians 2:5 to 8 on the hypostatic union. So we've seen these come together. First, I looked at Old Testament passages that talked about the deity of Christ. Then I looked at Old Testament passages that talked about the or, excuse me the deity of the Messiah. Then Old Testament passages that emphasize the humanity of the Messiah. And we looked at the titles, and in those titles there were, uh, in reference to his sonship, uh, there are six titles. The Son of God is the only one that emphasizes his deity. The others all emphasize his humanity. Son of David, Son of Abraham, both in Matthew 1.1, Son of Adam in Luke 3.38, Son of Man, Daniel 7.13, Matthew 20.18, Son of Mary, Mark 6.3, all emphasize his humanity. So the titles of Christ emphasize both his humanity and his deity. And now we come to an area that is somewhat new for some people, maybe old for others. It is confusing for many people, and it is an area known as typology. Typology, it is an aspect of interpretation of Scripture. An aspect of interpretation of Scripture, and it gets its name from a Greek word, Tupos, the Greek word is tupos, T, and that, that upsilon is transliterated usually in English with a Y. T-Y-P-O-S is the transliteration of tupos. And a tupos refers to an imprint that can serve as a mold or a pattern. So in the Old Testament a type in the Old Testament is a mold or pattern of what is then antitypical in the in the New Testament. So what you have first of all is a type. This is an example or a pattern in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in something in the Old Testament and what it is what fulfills it is called the anti type. That's your technical terminology. Type and anti-type. And what this emphasizes is the fact that in the Old Testament there are certain people, events, things, and institutions, people, events, things, and institutions that teach something, that model something. Not everything about the institution or the person or the thing is analogous to a doctrine or the person of Christ or the work of Christ, but there are certain elements that do typify or serve as a foreshadowing or serve as a model or pattern. Now, some people just go berserk with this. And uh, I remember years ago reading a commentator by the name of Arthur Pink, in a commentary he wrote, Gleanings in Genesis, and Pink is well known for that kind of a title. He wrote Gleanings in Genesis, Gleanings in Exodus, Gleanings in everything. And Pink, just everything that you see is a picture of Christ. Now that's going to, uh, too far of an extreme. There is a lot of debate as to just exactly what controls you have on, on typology and picking out which things uh, serve as these examples, or these uh, foreshadowing events, or institutions, or things. But it becomes clear from Scripture that certain things are examples, and you have this terminology used: tupas for type, and then the second word that's used is the Greek word hupodegma. H U P O. D-E-I-G-M-A. Hupa And this too has the same basic meaning. It's a synonym. It means a model, a pattern, or an example. A couple of references to where you can find these words are 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Talking about the Old Testament events at the, at the Exodus. Going through the Red Sea, Israel in the wilderness, Uh, Paul says, Now these things happened to them as an example, that is a tupas, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words, there are certain things that happened in the history of Israel that are types or examples of what happens in the life of a believer The the corporate nation Israel often represents certain things that happen in the individual life of a New Testament believer. There are other things in the Old Testament, such as the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priesthood, that foreshadowed and pictured certain elements in the uh, person and the work of Christ. For example, Hebrews eight five says that these things serve as a copy, and that's the Greek word hupadigma, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned uh, by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle for, quote, see, he says, that is God saying, that you make all things according to the pattern, that is, tupas there, the tupas which was shown you on the mountain. And then one of the most clear statements about the use of the word type, as we're using it in this study, is in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type, a type, a model, a pattern of him who was to come. So you have a clear statement in scripture that Adam, certain things about Adam, not everything about Adam, but certain things about Adam foreshadow certain things about Christ. And you have other statements made about uh, other people in the Old Testament that they that certain elements in their life foreshadow elements about Christ. Melchizedek is another one. The Melchizedekian priesthood There are certain elements about it that foreshadow the kind of priesthood Jesus Christ would have. So when we look at types, we look at five things, five categories. Persons, events, like the Exodus event. Things, like the Ark of the Covenant. Institutions. like the Aaronic priesthood and ceremonies, such as Passover. Those are the five categories of types, and we're going to start with looking at persons. First is Adam, Romans 5.14. Adam is called the head of the old creation, while Christ is the head of the new creation, that's point one. Adam is the head of the old creation. Christ is the head of the new creation. Adam is the designated head of the whole human race. Christ is the head or representative of the of all believers in the church age, the new creation in Christ. So that's a point of analogy. Just as Adam represents the old creation, Christ represents the new creation. That's a better word than head, represents. Adam represents, is the representative of the old creation, the federal head. Christ is the representative or federal head of the new creation. Second, both entered into life through a special act of God. Both entered into life through a special act of God. Adam was directly created by God in the Garden of Eden, and he was created perfectly. Jesus Christ entered into life through a special act of the virgin conception and birth, and he, too, was uh, created without sin. Third, both represent a constituency. Both represent a constituency. And then the fourth area of similarity is terminology. Adam is called the first Adam, Jesus the last Adam in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-five to 47. So in those areas, Adam is used in the Bible to foreshadow certain things about Christ second person in the Old Testament, going chronologically, is Abel. Abel, we studied Abel not long ago in our study on Genesis on Wednesday night. Uh, Abel is one of the first sons born to Adam. Abel is the one who was murdered by his older brother, Cain. Cain was a worker of the fields. Abel was a shepherd. Now, the interesting thing is that we think of shepherd or uh, someone who's a herdsman working with cattle as someone who's primarily in the food industry today. But that wasn't true at that time, because the human race were not authorized to eat meat. So the primary purpose of being a shepherd was raising animals for a sacrifice. So we have this analogy that's made in Hebrews 11:4 between Abel and Christ. So there's five areas of analogy, five points to emphasize with Abel. First, Abel is a shepherd who made an acceptable sacrifice to God. Abel was a shepherd who who made an acceptable sacrifice to God. Second, Christ is the true shepherd who made an acceptable sacrifice to God. So Abel foreshadows Jesus in that he is a shepherd and he makes an acceptable sacrifice to God. Third point, as Abel was slain by Cain, who represents the world, so Christ was slain by the world. Abel is slain by Cain, who represents those who reject God. Christ was slain by those who rejected God's provision. That is the world system. Fourth, as Abel's offering was accepted, Christ's offering was also accepted, Hebrews 11:4. The first that's similar to the first two points. The first two points emphasize Abel and Christ as both shepherds. The fourth point emphasized that both had offerings that were accepted. And then the fifth point, so Abel is a type of Christ as shepherd, he's a type of Christ in his offering, and he's a type of Christ in his death. Three areas of similarity. Then we come to the third person who's a type of Christ in Genesis, and that's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is that somewhat enigmatic figure who shows up in Genesis fourteen, seventeen through twenty. Uh, We don't have any indication in the text of his birth, of his death, of his heritage, his family, his genealogy, but that's okay. Some people get the idea, well, Melchizedek in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Christ. No, Melchizedek is a human being in the Old Testament who pictures certain elements about Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was not the pre-incarnate Christ. The text doesn't say he had no parents. The text just doesn't tell us who his parents are. And that's what's utilized as as part of the uh, analogy. Let's look at the points of comparison here. I have five under Melchizedek. First of all, he's the priest king of Salem. And when Abraham went out to defeat the uh, kings from the east who came in and had uh, uh, pillaged and rampaged through uh, Canaan and kidnapped his uh, nephew Lot and his family. And uh, when they left, Abraham pulled his servants together in the form of an army and went out after them and defeated them and rescued the hostages. When he came back, he brought back all of the booty that had been uh, uh, stolen by the uh, kings of the east and he gave he came to Salem, which is now Jerusalem. Salem meaning peace, where we get the word, the Hebrew word shalom is a cognate of Salem. And when he came back to Salem, Melchizedek, who's the priest king ruler of Salem, brought out bread and wine, which is an activity of a priest to the Most High God. It is a picture of a communion meal between Abraham and God, officiated by Melchizedek, the priest king. Second point, so we see that Abraham is a priest-king. Second point, in Psalm 110, verse 4, we have a messianic prophecy that indicates the Messiah will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's not an Aaronic Jewish priesthood. By Aaronic, I'm referring to Aaron. But it is a Gentile priesthood where you have a priest and king in one person together. That's important because Jesus Christ is not from the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe that produces the Aaronic priesthood, but he is from the tribe of Judah. Third point, the name Melchizedek. Melchi means king, Zedek, righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. king of righteousness, and of course the, Christ is the king of righteousness. So in his name he typifies the uh, work of Christ as the king of righteousness. As the king of Salem, Salem means peace, this foreshadows Jesus as the prince of peace. Fourth point, Salem for means peace. So Melchizedek is the priest king of Salem. Christ is the prince of peace. And then finally he is a type or foreshadows Christ as the as the priest as the priest king, combining both roles in one. Now we come to our next our Fourth, Isaac. Isaac, the son of Abraham, the promised son of Abraham. Uh, several points in which Isaac compares or foreshadows to Jesus. He's called the only begotten. Isaac is called the only begotten son of Abraham in Hebrews eleven seventeen. Christ is called the only begotten in John three sixteen. It's unique. It has nothing to do. The word only begotten, monogenes, doesn't emphasize generation. It emphasizes uniqueness because Isaac isn't the only son of Abraham he's preceded by Ishmael so Isaac is the only begotten Hebrews 11:17 Jesus is the only begotten or unique son of God John 3:16 both second point both Isaac and Jesus had a miraculous uh, conception and birth both Isaac and Jesus had a miraculous conception and birth Isaac because Sarah his mother Sarah and Father Abraham had lived much beyond the age of normal childbearing, so it was a a fantastic miracle that Sarah was able to become pregnant. There's a lot of details in just the physiology related to that. Uh, Ten years beyond normal childbearing years has tremendous uh, effects upon, uh, upon the uterus, and upon the whole elasticity of skin and the womb and all of the things that are involved in just the normal gestation process have been shut down and are gone. And so there's a lot of regeneration uh, of skin cells and abilities there for the birth of Isaac. So it's it's miraculous that Sarah could become pregnant. Jesus Christ, of course, is born through the miraculous virgin Conception and birth. Third, both births are foretold and promised. They are foretold and promised. Isaac's birth is foretold by at least 10 years. Jesus' birth, of course, is foretold from Genesis 3.15 on. Fourth point, Genesis in Genesis 22, Isaac was to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah by his father. Jesus is sacrificed on Mount Moriah, later known as Calgary or Golgotha. By his father. Isaac was to be sacrificed on Moriah by his father. At the last minute, the Lord stayed his hand and provided a substitute. That in itself, that ram that is provided as a substitute for Isaac is a type or foreshadowing of how Jesus is a, is a substitute. God's lamb provided as our substitute. So Genesis 22 involves Uh, a variety of types. The one we're emphasizing is that Isaac was to be sacrificed on Moriah by his father. Jesus is sacrificed on Moriah by his father. Fifth point, Genesis 24, the father Abraham secured a bride for Isaac, which is a picture of, of the Holy Spirit securing a bride for Christ in us. The father secured a bride for uh, Isaac and that is a picture of what's going on now as a bride is being secured for the father son the Lord Jesus Christ and that bride is the church and then Isaac is also a type of the church uh, that's utilized in Galatians 4:28 and 29 the church is a picture the church in the church age is a picture uh, and is analogous to the spiritual children of Abraham whereas in the Old Testament, Uh, Ishmael was a picture of the physical children who were not regenerate, Galatians 4.29. Then the fifth is Benjamin. Benjamin, Benjamin in Genesis 35.18, the next to last son of of Isaac. And Genesis 35.18, we're told, It came about as her soul, that is, Rachel's soul, was departing, for she died, that she named him, that is, Benjamin Ben-Oni, But his father called him Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin. Now, this foreshadows two aspects about Jesus Christ. The first is the suffering aspect. The Ben-Oni means uh, the son of sorrow. So the second point identifies the meaning of the names. Uh, Ben-Oni means son of sorrow. Ben-Yamin means son of my right hand. Rachel names him Ben-Oni. Jacob names him son of my right hand. Third point, as ben Jesus was the son of sorrow. He was the son of sorrow to his mother, Luke 2.35, and he is the man of sorrows who paid the penalty for our sins. As Benoni, Jesus is the suffering Messiah who pays the penalty for our sin. Fourth point, as ben or Benjamin, he is the son of my right hand, and to God the Father he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, Victorious in the battle, just as the tribe of Benjamin was victorious in warfare in the conquest period in the book of Joshua. Sixth, Joseph. Now, Joseph is the most complete picture of Christ in the Old Testament, and I have about 11 points of similarity there. He's the most complete picture, and I'm not trying to exhaust all the typology in Joseph. I certainly am not. First point: Both of them were born by special intervention of God. Both Joseph and Jesus are born by special intervention of God. Joseph, uh, Joseph is born last. Uh, excuse me, Benjamin was born last. Joseph is next to last. He is the. There are only two children of Rachel. I misspoke earlier. Benjamin is the last. Uh, Joseph was next to last, but Rachel, to that point, had not been able to conceive or give birth. Both were born by, both Joseph and Jesus are born by special intervention of God, Genesis 30, verses 22 to 24, and Luke 1, Second point of comparison, both were objects of special love from their fathers. Both of them were objects of special love from their fathers. Isaac had a, uh... Uh, Jacob had a tremendous special love. Jacob had a tremendous love for Joseph. He was his father's favorite. Genesis 37.3 compared to Matthew 3.17 and John 3.35. Genesis 37.3 compared with Matthew 3.17 and John 3.35. Third point, both of them were hated by their brethren. Both Joseph and Jesus were hated by his brethren. It was joseph 's brethren who conspired against him to murder him first of all, and then they sold him into slavery to a group of traveling midianites genesis thirty seven four and uh, comparison Jesus was hated by his brethren by the jews john fifteen twenty four to twenty five so First point, both were born by special intervention of God. Second, both were objects of special love from their fathers. Third, both were hated by their brethren. Fourth, both were rejected as rulers over their brethren. Genesis 37.8, Joseph has the dreams where he sees him, that he is being uh, bowed down to by his brothers. And so they hated him for that, and they rejected him and his superiority. Uh, Genesis 37.8, and compared to matthew twenty one thirty seven to thirty nine in the New testament and john fifteen twenty four to twenty five Jesus is rejected as a ruler by his his brethren. Fifth point, both were conspired against and put into the pit of death. Both Joseph and Jesus are conspired against and put in the pit of death. His brothers conspire against him, just as the Jewish leaders conspired against Jesus. That's Genesis thirty-seven eighteen and twenty-four, compared with Matthew twenty-six, three and four, Matthew twenty-seven, thirty-five to thirty-seven. That's Genesis thirty-seven eighteen and twenty-four, and Matthew twenty-six three and four, Matthew twenty-seven, thirty-five to thirty-seven. Sixth point, both were sold for silver. Genesis thirty-seven twenty-eight matthew twenty six fourteen to fifteen both were sold for silver seventh point both were condemned though they were innocent. Uh, joseph is innocent yet Potiphar's wife uh, claimed that he had uh, tried to seduce her and so he's condemned and sent to jail. jesus of course is condemned and sent to the cross though he's innocent uh, verses are genesis thirty nine eleven to twenty Isaiah 53.9, both were condemned, though innocent. Eighth point, both became servants. Joseph became a servant uh, in Genesis 39.4, a servant of Potiphar. Jesus is a servant for all mankind. Philippians 2.7, both are servants. Ninth point, both were raised by God from humiliation to glory. Joseph is in prison, and yet it is God that brings him out of prison and elevates him to a position second only to Pharaoh. Jesus, of course, is elevated to the right hand of God the Father, and eventually every uh, knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, Philippians 2.10. Tenth point, both were eventually recognized and accepted by their brethren. Both were eventually recognized and accepted by their brethren. Joseph in Genesis forty-five one through fifteen, Jesus at the second, or during the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, will finally be accepted by the Jews. Romans eleven one through twenty-seven. They have been set aside, but not permanently. And then eleventh point: both exalt their brethren to places of honor. There is forgiveness uh, for the brothers of Joseph. And he exalts them to places of honor genesis forty five sixteen to eighteen and the Jews will be exalted to a place of honor in the millennial kingdom isaiah sixty five seventeen to twenty five So that shows points of analogy between Joseph and Christ. Then we come to Aaron Aaron is a priest he is a Levitical priest, which in in uh, that sense he is not analogous to Christ because Christ was not a Levitical priest, but there are certain parallels to their priesthood. I have four points on Aaron. First of all, as a priest, Aaron was appointed to his office, Hebrews 5, 4. Christ is also appointed to his office, Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. So key passage on the Aaronic typology is Hebrews 5, 4 through 6. Both Aaron and Jesus are appointed to their office. Secondly, Aaron was appointed to the earthly sphere. Christ was appointed to the heavenly sphere, Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. Aaron is a priest in the earthly sphere. Christ is a priest in the heavenly sphere. Third, Aaron ministered the old covenant. Christ ministered the new covenant, Hebrews 8, 6. Aaron ministered the old covenant. Christ ministered the new covenant. Fourth, as Aaron was part of Israel and served as a mediator between God and man, so Christ is part of the human race. And serves as as the mediator, first Timothy two five, for there is only one uh, mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Moses is our next type. Moses is our next type. Moses is the eighth. I only have ten. Sometimes it gets a little rugged going through grocery lists like this, but this is stuff you need to understand. paints a good picture of how consistent the Old Testament is in portraying Jesus Christ and how he fulfills all of these types. It's also important for those of you who are teaching in prep school because as you teach through these Old Testament heroes, these are the points you need to bring out as you teach as they serve as types for Christ. Now, Moses is the... Most lengthy of the types. I have 13 points of comparison. First point, Moses and Jesus are both prophets. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. Moses and Jesus are both prophets. Second point, Moses and Jesus are both leaders. Third point, Moses and Jesus are both mediators. A mediator is someone who stands between one group and another group. So they're both prophets, both leaders, both mediators. The first point has one scripture reference. Moses and Jesus are both prophets, Deuteronomy eighteen, fifteen to nineteen. I know this at least the heater's on. You know, if it was fifty degrees in here like it was first hour, you wouldn't get any of this written down. Moses and Jesus are both prophets, they're both leaders, they're both mediators. That's the first three points. Fourth point, as children they were both in danger, and other infants were murdered. Moses' life is threatened. He's put in the uh, uh, in, in the little basket and the bull rushes and sent out along the uh, along the Nile in order to protect him. And Pharaoh has uh, all these other infants under the age of two killed in the same way. Herod uh, ordered the infanticide of all those two all the infants two years and younger when he heard of Jesus' birth. Fifth point of comparison: both were chosen by God to be deliverers. Both were chosen by God to be deliverers. God chose Moses to deliver the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Jesus was chosen by God, or actually sent by God, chosen from eternity past, to deliver all mankind from the penalty of sin. Exodus three seven through ten, in comparison with Acts seven twenty five. Exodus three seven through ten and Acts seven twenty five. Sixth point. Both were rejected by their brethren. Both are rejected by their brethren. Exodus two eleven to fifteen, compared to John one eleven, and Acts seven twenty three to twenty eight, Acts eighteen five through six. I'll go over those again. Both are rejected by their brethren. Exodus two eleven to fifteen, John one eleven, Acts seven twenty three to twenty eight, Acts eighteen five through six. Seventh point: during the rejection, both are ministered to uh by gentiles and secure a gentile bride during that period of their rejection they are ministered to by gentiles moses by the midianites and secure a gentile bride which is a type of the church exodus 216 uh 16 to 21 excuse me exodus that should be exodus 16 16 to 21 and second corinthians 11 2, Ephesians 5:25 to 32, Exodus 16:16 16, 16 to 21, Second Corinthians 11:2, Ephesians 5:25 to 32. Eighth point: Both return after this period of rejection, which is like Christ being away at, during the current session. Both return to deliver Israel after the period of rejection. So both return to deliver Israel after the period of rejection. Ninth point both are accepted by Israel when they return. Both are accepted by Israel when they return. Exodus four nineteen to thirty one, Exodus four nineteen to thirty one, Romans eleven, twenty four to twenty six, Acts fifteen, fourteen and seventeen. Both are accepted by Israel at their second coming. Tenth, both function as advocates for their people. They both function as advocates for the people. Moses when the Jews get into tremendous idolatry, and God uh, threatens to kill them all and start over with Moses. Moses is an advocate uh, and an intercessor. Both function as advocates for their people, Exodus 32, 31 to 35, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Both act as intercessors. That's the 11th point. Both act as intercessors, Exodus seventeen, one through 6, and Hebrews seven, twenty-five. Exodus seventeen, one through 6. And Hebrews seven twenty-five, both are rulers over uh, Israel. Deuteronomy thirty-three four and five compared to John one forty-nine. Tenth point again. Let me review these. Uh, ninth, both are accepted by Israel. At the second coming. Exodus four nineteen to thirty-one. Romans eleven twenty-four to twenty-six. Acts fifteen fourteen and seventeen. Tenth point. Both function as advocates for their people, Exodus thirty-two, thirty-one to thirty-five compared to first John two, one to two. Eleventh point, both are intercessors, Exodus seventeen, one to six, compared to Hebrews seven twenty-five. Twelfth point, both are rulers, Deuteronomy thirty-three, four and five, compared to John one forty-nine. And finally, point thirteen, both had to die before Israel both had to die before their people could enter the promised land. Moses had to die before Israel could enter the promised land. Jesus had to die before believers could enter into heaven. Joshua. Joshua. Number nine, our ninth person. First of all, the point of comparison, their names are related. Their names are cognates, meaning Joshua meaning Yahweh saves, Yahshua from the Hebrew word yasha meaning to save or deliver. Uh, Joshua or Yahshua and Yeshua Jesus are uh related names emphasizing salvation. Point number 2. Joshua succeeds Moses just as Christ succeeds Moses and the law. Joshua succeeded or superseded Moses just as Christ supersedes Moses and the law, John one seventeen Romans Romans uh, nine two through four, Hebrews seven eighteen to nineteen, and Galatians three twenty three to twenty five, Romans nine two through four. Romans nine two through four, Hebrews seven, eighteen to nineteen, and Galatians three, twenty-three to twenty-five. Third point of comparison Joshua and Christ win victories where Moses failed. Romans eight, three, and four. Joshua and Christ win victories where Moses failed. Romans eight, three, and four. I think that should be Romans 8, 2 through 4 in the second point. had a typo there. I hit both keys, so I have Romans 89 in my notes. Since there's no Romans 89, it's either 8 or 9. That should be Romans 8, 2 through 4 in point 2, not 9. Point 3, Joshua and Christ win victories where Moses failed. Romans 8, 3 and 4. And then the fourth point, both intercede for their own people. Joshua 7, 5 through 9. Luke twenty two thirty two. First John 2 one and John 17. both intercede for their own people. Joshua seven, five through nine, Luke 22:32, First John 2:1, John 17.. <coughs> and last but not least, our tenth person who's a type was Boaz. We studied Boaz extensively in our book uh, our study of the book of Ruth. First point on Boaz, he is a type of Christ because he was a kinsman redeemer. He's called the goel. In Hebrew the goel was the kinsman redeemer. <coughs> the goel <coughs> <coughs> Second point, the Goel, as a kinsman redeemer, the Goel, the redeemer, had to be a kinsman. He had to be a kinsman. Leviticus twenty-five forty-eight to 49. That means he had to be related. It's a type of Jesus' humanity. He couldn't pay the penalty for our sins unless he were a human. That's the picture. The redeemer had to be related. So Jesus had to be a true human being. Third point. The Redeemer had to be able to redeem. He had to be able to redeem. Because of his impeccability, Jesus was able to die as our substitute. Uh, compare Ruth 4, 4 through 6 with John 10, 11 and 18, 1 Peter 1, 18. Ruth 4, 4 through 6, John 10, 11 and 18, and First Peter one eighteen. And fourth, the Redeemer had to be able to pay the redemption price, and Jesus paid our redemption price on the cross Leviticus 25:27 compared to Romans 3:24 to 26 and 1 Peter one eighteen to 19 Leviticus 25:27 Romans 3:24 to 26 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19 now those are 10 Ten individuals in the Old Testament who foreshadow in their lives certain elements about the person of Jesus Christ. And in every one of those, they're emphasizing something related to his humanity. That tells us that the Messiah had to be truly human. Then there are typical events. So at the very beginning, I said there were uh, five things that we look at, persons, events things, institutions, and ceremonies. So what are some of the events in the Old Testament that typified the person or the work of Christ? First of all, you have the clothing of Adam and Eve. When they uh, fall and then they try to clothe themselves with fig leaves, then that is a failure. That is a picture of our attempt to clothe ourselves with our own works, with human good. So when God then uh sacrifices an animal and makes clothing for Adam and Eve at the end of chapter three. then that is a picture of his provision of perfect righteousness uh, to the believer for justification. Scripture would be job twenty nine fourteen psalm one hundred and thirty two nine isaiah sixty one one isaiah sixty four six romans three twenty two and revelation nineteen eight so the clothing of Adam and Eve is a picture of the work of Christ. The second typical event in Genesis is the ark. The ark represents god's deliverance of man uh, through judgment there's judgment salvation theres judgment on mankind, and God delivers him by means of grace and second Peter two five tells us that that deliverance has specific uh, there, there are exact specifications. There's only one ark. There's only one entrance. There's only one way of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. There's only one way of salvation, and that is faith alone in Christ alone. A third event is the deliverance from Egypt. The deliverance from Egypt is a picture of Christ delivering us from sin. Fourth, in the wilderness... As Israel goes through the wilderness, it's a picture of the believer in the church age facing testing in the cosmic system, and God provides through manna, which typified Jesus as the bread of life, John 6. Uh, Exodus 16:4 and 35, the provision of manna, pictures Jesus as the bread of life, John 6. And in Exodus 17:6, the water from the smitten rock, represents Christ's life that was given, that relates to salvation. And then later, when he was to speak to the rock, that would represent water for the provision of the uh, spiritual life. So in the wilderness, you have also a typical event. Then we have typical things, typical things, such as the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of propitiation, It's a picture of propitiation. You have a box of a of acacia wood of a of acacia wood, which represents the humanity of Christ, which was then overlaid with gold, which pictures the deity of Christ. Inside you had three things. You had the broken Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod. Uh, broken Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded in manna, each of which represented some failure on the part of Israel. It's covered by a lid, which was called the mercy seat. Once again, acacia wood covered with gold. On top were two cherubim represented the holiness, the righteousness, justice of God. And then the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was placed on the a mercy seat, and that pictures that righteousness and justice are satisfied by the, the sacrifice. And that is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross pays the penalty or covers all of our sins, and God's righteousness and justice are completely satisfied. So one typical thing would be the ark of the covenant. Another typical th- uh thing would be the lamb that represents Jesus Christ. The lamb is represents the gentle submission of Christ to the will of God the Father. Acts 8:32, 1 Peter 2:21 to 23. The meal offering uh represents Christ in his perfect humanity tested by suffering. Leviticus 2:1. That's point number three. First point is the Ark of the Covenant. Second, the Lamb. Third, the Meal Offering. Uh, Fourth, the Peace Offering. Through Christ's work on the cross, we have peace with God. The Peace Offering, Romans 5.13, Leviticus 3.1, Colossians 1.20. And then fifth, you have two birds. One was slain, which represents Christ in his death. The others dipped in the blood, which represents Christ in resurrection, Leviticus fourteen. For. so these uh, typical things the Ark of the Covenant, the Lamb, the meal offering, the peace offering and the two birds. then you have the uh, tabernacle itself in many ways represents the person of Christ uh, in many of the details that you have there the, the construction of the wood and the gold represents the hypostatic union. the labor, Represents Christ as the one who cleanses us from sin. The candlestick represents Christ as the light of the world. The uh, brass altar, brass is a symbol for judgment, represents Christ as the one who was judged for us. And then the altar of incense pictures Christ as the one who intercedes for us. So each piece of furniture in the tabernacle represents something about the person And the work of Christ. Then you had the brazen serpent in Numbers twenty-one five through nine is a picture of salvation. All you had to do was look at the serpent. The very fact that you looked there meant that you believed that God said was true, that if you looked at the serpent you would be saved. It doesn't involve works at all, Numbers twenty-one five through nine, and that's a picture of faith alone in Christ alone, John three, fourteen through sixteen. Then you have institutions. We've touched on them already with Melchizedek and Aaron. And uh, Melchizedek represents Christ's priesthood as a priest king. And the Aaronic priesthood represents Christ as a mediator. And then when it comes to ceremonies, you have the feasts of Israel. For example, the Passover is a picture of Christ, our Passover. So all of these together represent different aspects of the person and the work of Christ. You can't just go in willy-nilly and pick just anything uh, and make it a type of Christ. It is clear from the way something was used or structured that it uh, pictures or portrays something about his person and work. In summary, what we have seen to this point is that the Old Testament makes it clear It makes it clear in prophecies. It makes it clear in overt statements. It makes it clear in symbolism. It makes it clear in terms of the titles given to Christ, that given to the Messiah, that the Messiah would be both fully God and fully man. It wasn't always crystal clear that this was going to end up in one person. That's why the Jews at the first coming expected two different Messiahs, but It's there. It's not missing. It's not covert. You have passages like Isaiah 9, 6, which indicate clearly that it's one person. But it does not become come into tight focus for us until we get into the New Testament. So what we've done so far in this whole study of Christology is to focus on the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ, that he is his existence in eternity past, and then his existence in the Old Testament, uh, his appearances in the Old Testament, his theophanies, prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Next time, in the next class, we're going to get to the crucial key event, and that is the virgin birth, which is the incarnation. The most important doctrine outside of salvation, the most important doctrine in the New Testament, and why it is one of the most Uh, attack doctrines in the New Testament is the virgin birth because without the virgin birth you don't have a divine savior you don't have a sinless savior therefore you don't have a savior the virgin conception and birth is the means by which the hypostatic union comes to be so we view the whole issue of the deity and humanity of Christ the hypostatic union his impeccability the kenosis All of that comes together. It focuses on the virgin birth. With it, you have a salvation. Without it, there's no Savior. There's no salvation. And that will be our next study, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. This morning, come to a greater appreciation of all the ways in which you pictured our so great salvation in the Old Testament. Father, we thank you for the way that you have. Uh, guided and directed us as a body of believers for the way you provide everything we need to know for our spiritual life, for the way you have provided a, a salvation that, that goes far beyond anything that we could ever uh, ask or think, beyond anything that we can imagine. Father, we thank you for our Savior, who, though he existed in eternity past in the form of God, did not think that was something to be grasped after, but humbled himself to the point of death that he might be our Savior and pay the penalty for our sins. Father, we thank you for his uh, work on the cross and all that he has done for us and our salvation that is by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.